Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we made it. We have our Oscar nominations for 2023. And my God, I am so excited and actually pretty happy. Like I came out of it and I was like, this feels good. It was crazy because, so I went into work early this morning to watch them. And there was a, a moment when a particular nomination occurred where I screamed. It was when Tar was recognized in editing. And one of my coworkers looked in the room and she opened the door and I was like, it's okay, it's just the Oscar nominations. And then she just came in and watched them with me. But yeah, it was fun because there's always this sense of anticipation around these and you don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. we spend so much time covering these and doing the contender series really not only are they revealing what the oscar nominations are they're revealing what we are going to be talking about for the next six weeks like diving deep so you hope you hope that they're good and they're a good representation of the year in film i think some of them certainly are others not so much we will get there but also we have a special guest bennett is here welcome back bennett hi Just to tell you about my morning, it was a little different. So I took the morning off and then went in for a highly unproductive afternoon. Just a quick outline of how we'll run through things today. We'll talk about the Best Picture nominees, go through some things that surprised us, some of the big winners for the day, and we'll get into some listener questions later on and talk about things that we love to see, things that we're excited for, and just how we feel generally about how things may go. And yeah, from here, we have our contender series where we'll go through every single one of those names that was mentioned this morning. So the Best Picture nominees, just a refresher, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and The Correct W, Women Talking. (laughs) On top, we have Everything Everywhere, leading with 11 nominations, followed by All Quiet on the Western Front and The Banshees of Inisherin with nine. So I think overall, these top three and then the following films have eight, seven, six. So a lot of these movies are getting lots of nominations. So I do like that there isn't a runaway nomination leader to throw everything into, you know, making a lot of assumptions with that. Like, yes, Everything Everywhere all at once is has 11 nominations that's the most but at, coming down from that there's a couple with nine and then there's eight seven six five four kind of a full spectrum down from there whereas in the past we've had you know 12 and then the next highest is eight and then five and below and it's really all kind of around one film so i, I do like that I, I like that it's not kind of there's one massive big runaway however so many of these movies got high nomination tallies that the below the line, the craft categories is comprised of seven movies across 50 nominations because they all got all of these craft nominations. And there's only one or two spots where a movie with one nomination, two nominations kind of snuck in as a cool costume design nominee or like a cool song nominee. I would prefer having a runaway favorite and more variety in the categories than having a bunch of films with high nomination tallies, meaning that they're all just nominated for everything. I agree with that. I was thinking about that earlier today, starting to 
plan for our contenders episodes and realizing like, oh, we're going to be talking about, you know, Avatar The Way of Water a few times. And those same episodes will also be talking about Top Gun Maverick and Elvis because those are the movies that they consider like the technical movies with sound and editing and production design, really everything. So yeah, I, I do prefer more variety. I agree with you. Yeah, I'd like to like run some stats on on the past decade mm-hmm. or so and see what that's like, like how how much variation there actually is in the craft categories and yeah. what year had the most and the least. I'm very happy we don't have to watch an oddball VFX movie like Free Guy. Like I'm very happy about that. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but Yeah, you don't have to do Jurassic <laughs> yes. World. Yes. Very happy I could avoid that one still. What did you guys think about All Quiet on the Western Front doing so well? This really surged, I think, at the perfect time. It got so many BAFTA nominations. All-time BAFTA nomination leader with 14. So mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure what to make about make of that because sometimes BAFTA nominations can be misleading and don't always translate to the Oscars. But the Academy, if they love one thing, it's their war movies. Was, mm-hmm. And they love this one, too. I just never expected, I think, at the beginning of the season that this would be Netflix's big movie this year. When I was on here with you guys last time, and we were talking about the shortlists, and it showed up in all of the shortlists, mm-hmm. at the end of that conversation, I was thinking, okay, this is definitely one that I need to watch and see more about and how I feel about. But we didn't, we weren't really sure if it was, if it was actually a sign of anything, but... It seems like it was the first bellwether, at least, of what would come afterwards, like the BAFTA nominations then today, that maybe we should have put a little more stock in that, that it was like, oh, all these people did watch this movie, and it's because they're showing up in every feasible category. Mm-hmm. They all watched it, and they all liked it, so maybe a lot of other people will too. It threw me because for how much they liked it, I kept thinking it was a British film, but it's German so I was like, wait, if they're loving this as much as they are, maybe we do need to think about it. And I kind of felt the same about the Batman. I was like, these movies are showing up on the shortlist. They are really great technical films, but can they happen? And I was very happy with how much All Quiet showed up. Because you love this movie, right? Yeah, and we've heard this multiple times and like, we're getting to the point now that apparently this was like my favorite movie of the year <laughs> for how many times you I guys mean, are like, you, you well, love this movie, right? <laughs> I watched it over the weekend and I thought it was really good. So I'm, I'm on board, but I, I just remember you having a passion for it. And now I'm very happy for you that it did so well. I am so happy it showed up in makeup and hairstyling even mm-hmm. because when you see this movie, I mean, mm-hmm. again, all these components, very worthy. Yep. But yeah, I would say that was my high point. Along with that is the Banshees of Inishirin. I think we all liked it a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was great. It's a movie that has really stayed with me. I haven't gathered the courage or the inner strength to watch it again. I know I need to and I really want to, but I just, it's a movie that surprisingly really puts me through the ringer by the end in a way that I just have to set aside like five days to think about this movie and maybe longer on the second watch. I don't know. But yeah, it's a movie that I really love. I think that the performances are also the types of performances that are not always recognized by the actor's branch. They're subtle. 
They just have a lot of emotional depth to them, but not in a way that is, I'm screaming from the rooftops to show you how great of an actor I am or to make you feel this strained emotion that the director is telling me to, you know, give you. I also think technically it's it's really beautiful, but it's not overly showy. It's It's just a beautiful, nice movie that makes you feel in a way that is not saccharine or like too sugary sweet, which I always like. Mm-hmm. I didn't cry while I was watching it, but I felt immense despair when I went to bed that night. Yes. And, and actually, it's interesting how it was classified as a comedy at the Globes, which I get why it was. My boyfriend watched it over the weekend and he was very upset because he went into it thinking that it was a comedy. He loved the movie, mm-hmm. but he did not go into it thinking it was the right thing because of the Globes. So so that's interesting. Yeah. But It is a pitch black comedy. Like it is mm-hmm. <laughs> the mm-hmm. darkest a comedy can really get, I think. This movie and kind of as we're talking, I'm thinking about things in a different way. And it's how I feel like a lot of these movies that we're talking about came out earlier in the year like elvis was early summer top gun maverick was summer i mean avatar the way of water is the only one that's really like a late breaking sort of classic wait till november december to release it all the other movies had festival premieres or were early in the year yeah and thinking back to venice and like bennett how you saw banshees we saw blonde tar was there (laughs) Academy Award nominee blonde. (laughs) At the time, I was like, no, not happening. And like, wow, things have changed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But no Oscar nominations for The Sun. That's... Put that to rest. hang our hat on that. Yeah. (laughs) And then you have uh, Women Talking, which it maybe comes out in February. (laughs) You you know, like, who knows when it's coming out, but it did get a festival run. The Cyrenoification of Women Talking. (laughs) It's crazy because that movie premiered at Telluride and had all the signs of a big prestige award season contender, specifically for the industry. I don't know if we knew if it would hit with critics or not. We thought maybe, but definitely with the industry. It's this issues-based film. Frances McDormand and that entire cast was walking around Telluride and it just seemed like it was destined for award season glory. And then everything happened with United Artists, Orion, the campaign. And I was really scared. I think one of the jokes of these nominations truly was that with every category women talking was being considered in, The Whale was also that other fringe contender. So for adapted screenplay and for picture. So by the time you got to that last slot, it was like, okay, I'm, you know... Making a wish here. Is it women talking or the whale? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or probably like a less likely, but uh, the woman came still right at that slot. Mm -hmm. Best picture that it had had no nominations up to that point, but still it was like there were three big W movies with best picture potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of like what they are wild for, definitely everything everywhere all at once, all quiet on the Western front. The Banshees of Inisherin for sure. I also think they really prioritized the theatrical experience and sequels this year. 
So prior to this, like sequels were never really nominated for Best Picture. I think it had been only seven times. You, of course, have your Mm -hmm. The Godfather Part 2 and great sequels that are there. But this year they gave us two, Avatar The Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick. I think at the beginning of the season, I definitely didn't expect both of these to show up here. But they're here and streamers in general, like streaming platforms, I feel like Apple coming off of a best picture win and sort of taking the year off. They're like holding out, I think, for Killers of the Flower Moon, maybe Ridley Scott's Napoleon, but they're not here in the race. Netflix has All Quiet on the Western Front, but it doesn't feel like that standard big Netflix player that also has a director tied to it or anything. Most of these movies came out in theaters and a handful of them did really well in theaters like breaking records shattering expectations i mean avatar the way of water crossed two billion top gun maverick did so well domestically even elvis and everything everywhere all at once did really well Mm -hmm. i think considering their budgets and what people were thinking of these movies when they came out so it, it almost seems like the industry was looking to return to that big theatrical experience and celebrating these like in-person experiences again over maybe some smaller, quieter, at-home viewings. It's interesting, though, how a lot of these movies have become available on streaming platforms now, though, too. And like, is that the way that we're going? And is that how studios are looking to boost revenues is like Elvis did really well watch it on HBO Max now and promote it that way like it's interesting Mm -hmm. how yes we want to see movies in the theater but now they're available and like is a re-release into theaters after nominations like is that going to be a thing of the past right yeah I wonder like this weekend next weekend if anything gets put in theaters for more than a showing a day you know, maybe they'll give up a slot on a screen. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing with you know, Glass tar. Onion and Netflix saying that was a test thing for a week and we're not putting it back in theaters despite making money. Like, I have been waiting and waiting to see everything everywhere again. And I did, but I was like, I want to see this in the theater. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting. I'm looking for showtime. So it's like, I want this to happen, but I don't think it's going to be a thing. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think if having these movies on streaming platforms early actually helped their campaigns in a way, too. Because, like, a movie like The Fablemans did terrible business and went to streaming very quickly. And I do wonder if that helped it. But even more than that, I think about, like, Hong Chow, for instance, getting in for The Whale... I wonder if the menu being one of the most watched movies on HBO Max, right? With and she's starring in that, like if that helped her campaign at all too. So I don't know, there's a lot to it. And then I wonder if The Woman King would have done better if it went to a streaming platform or had a platform release earlier because it did really good business in theaters. People were talking about it. It had incredible audience and critic scores. And I really thought it was going to be loved by the industry based on like early word of screenings. But then it just it seemed to be forgotten and just totally eclipsed by these other movies. So, yeah, I do wonder with that one if it going to, you know, Netflix or Peacock even somewhere earlier would have helped that movie's campaign. 
I think it was even expected to be on Netflix sometime in January, and then a date was never announced, and we're just slowly leaving January, and it has no nominations, so what's the drive to put it on there? Yeah. Which is such a shame. I still haven't seen it to that point. Oh, wow. I didn't get to theaters when it was out, and then I've been waiting for it to show up somewhere. Um, in terms of the theatrical release and sequels and all that, I do like how wide the spectrum is in this Best Picture list of big and small movies. Not just their box office success, but even just like kind of the feeling of the size of them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar being the highest grocers of the year on one end and the other end, women talking, (laughs) who knows what the box office is, but (laughs) it feels like something that unfortunately, wouldn't have a big release and wouldn't Mm -hmm. make a ton of money. Similar to something like Triangle of Sadness is more of like an art house type of release. Um, Tar went wide, but like, you know, was still seen by kind of a niche group of people that I felt like there was a big spectrum. And then kind of like middle movies, like Elvis is, is a big spectacle, but it's felt more kind of like a... Mm-hmm. I don't know what the budget is. It felt mid-budget. Maybe that's a read, but I don't know. I guess I'm, th- I'm thinking like Elvis, Fablemans, Banshees. Okay, Elvis cost under $90 million. So that's okay. That's like that's sure. pretty good for that. Right, right. Yeah, like of under $100 million above the indie spirit threshold. Yeah. Let's call that. Let's pretend that's mid-budget. There's a good spectrum in there. And it, it, to the point that it reminded me of the 2010 Best Picture lineup. That's like Toy Story 3, Inception, mm-hmm. uh, and then you get uh, The Kids Are All Right and Winter's Bone, kind of like big and small and everything in between, like The King's Speech right in the middle, Black Swan. But yeah, it, it, it made me think of that, kind of looking at the full, because people are touting how big of a deal it is that it's the two top grossing films of the year made it into Best Picture, and but there, we still have the everything under that, which I like seeing. Yeah. I think the 2010 comparison is a good one. I always like that year, too, despite not liking the winner. I like the year and how spread out everything is. And it does feel comprehensive of a movie year if you have a lineup like that, when there is sort of something for everyone there. Another thing they were wild for, first-time acting nominees. This was nuts. 16 of the 20. I feel like we are so used to these acting categories being full of veterans, someone where you just think, oh, they're going to get nominated again because they have three Oscars or they've been nominated so many times before. But this, it really wasn't the case. I feel like in a number of the acting categories, they got pretty creative with who they were nominating. And I Mm -hmm. always prefer that to just checking the boxes, going with what they think they're supposed to do. Yeah, the only four with previous nominations are Kate Blanchett, Michelle Williams, Angela Bassett, and Judd Hirsch. Wild. And even that, like, Angela and Judd, it's been decades since their last mm-hmm. nominations. Didn't Doesn't Judd Hirsch set a record for the biggest span mm-hmm. between two nominations? Yeah, it's been 42 years since he was nominated for Ordinary People. <laughs> I, have to, I got my chance to bring up Ordinary People. There, <laughs> there we go. But yeah, and then Angela Bassett, she hasn't been nominated since, was it 94, for What's Love Got to Do With It? So that's a really, really long stretch as well. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's great. 
It was interesting. I don't think that they necessarily had to try too hard to find new nominees. Like, I think the field was pretty first nom heavy. Mm-hmm. But but maybe that's even just a symptom of the, I don't know, like, who was getting big roles this year that ended up striking with Oscar, that it was just a bigger year for people who were busy, la- or, you know, like, haven't been busy in a little bit, or yeah. are, are finally kind of cresting on their, their celebrity. Mm-hmm. And some of them, too. It's like, oh, how is this Bill Nye's first nomination? Or how is this Colin Farrell's first nomination, even? But yeah, I'm I'm excited for, for most of the acting nominations, I'll say. Yeah, I guess looking at them, I wouldn't have guessed it was 16. Part of my brain just thinks like, oh, Brendan Gleeson, he's been around forever. Like, why wouldn't he have an Oscar nomination? I mean, that goes obviously for Colin Farrell and some of the actresses as well but it is really surprising but i think also what maybe helps certain people is having multiple films out this year for colin farrell we talked about after yang a lot on the pod hong chow you just mentioned was in the menu and andrea riseborough was in three different films this year so these actors are working really hard and they're getting out there and that's probably part of what's helping them too is being recognized from other works and other bodies like Andrea was in the spirits we can get to that in a second but you know pulling other people in to help vote for her before we get into Andrea which will be very soon I thought it would be fun if we each shared something from the nominations that we are wild for so Bennett as our guest you can go first I thought of a bunch of different things but I'll say the thing that I screamed the loudest at was when the sea beast was nominated for animated feature uh-huh. i love that movie there are ways that it's very straightforward and very classic in what it's about in the story it's you know there are people on a ship fighting kind of a monster like a sea monster but i thought it was incredibly well directed for an animated film that there were long set pieces that i was holding my breath through and gasping at some of the uh honestly the this is not the right word but like the cinematography of the animation that there were there were a lot of directorial choices that i was really into and i got very emotionally invested in and i was very excited that it showed up i wish that some of the other things that didn't show up did as well like i was very sad for some of for like my father's dragon and wendell and wild but yeah i screamed because i didn't think that was going to be an option at all but it's my favorite animated film that i've seen this year oh that's i'm excited to watch it then Favorite, i haven't seen wow. it yet i have not seen Wet in the wild marcel the shell or my father's dragon did you see pinocchio it's so much better than pinocchio i really dislike pinocchio <laughs> and i put a three and a half on letterbox but i desperately need to drop it i'm thrilled it did not get any score or song nomination you might like marcel the shell i think i will it's cute wendell and wild is really good i liked it the Sea Beast is available on Netflix, so you can rewatch. Maybe I should rewatch, I guess. From your glowing review, again, a contender. My thing I'm wild for, I mean, I already kind of talked about All Quiet. Do you want a different one? I mean, that's fine. No. If you, all, like you said, All Quiet is your little, your niche area. <laughs> I know, you said you didn't <laughs> want to talk about it, so if you want to talk about it. I mentioned makeup, but I think apart from Tara showing up in editing, which is the only thing I clapped for, I think during the nomination ceremony i will say all quiet showing up in score cinematography and visual effects were just things i wasn't really expecting 
especially score. I thought I had that nailed down and nope. That was the thing. I think when the movie starts, you hear this discordant score and like immediately throws you off guard. And I love that about the movie, especially. So I guess specifically those things about it. Score was a wild category this morning. I feel like a lot of Mm -hmm. people thought we had this solid five and that Alexander Desplat was getting in for Pinocchio and Hildur was getting in for Women Talking. And it was just going to be this solid five. And we got a variation on that. And I was really happy with the nominees in this category for the most part. Seeing everything everywhere all at once there. I really like that score. And it's just a different pick, too, for that branch to go with something more like that. I mean, everything everywhere in song and score, Bennett, I feel like you called that. I didn't predict it, but you I wanted it. was really happy for it. Yeah, that was kind of, that was one of my other options for what I'm wild for. Because I listened to the score again today. It's so not what they usually nominate. No. It's weird and all over the place. And it feels like something that people listen to that doesn't even make the short list. But I'm very happy for it. And Nick, for for All Quiet on the Western Front, we mentioned it before, but the makeup and hairstyling nomination. I guess since you just watched it, yeah. Like the mud, the dried mud. Yeah, there's like one scene in particular. I don't know if that's what we're all thinking of. But there's one in my mind that... Every time the camera cuts to him, you can you're watching like like the mud gets drier and drier mm-hmm. with every shot. Mm-hmm. That I, I don't know how they. I mean, it must have taken a lot of work to do, and but it was very noticeable and very cool. Sophia, what about you? Yeah, I have nominations, and then I have just a general comment. Riz Ahmed and Allison Williams need to announce mm-hmm. the Oscar nominations every single year. The detail around Allison's pronunciations. And how correct uh-huh. all of them were. I, yes. like, knowing that she had studied and practiced, I was just so excited and comforted by this. It was so Marnie. It was Marnie. It was... It, they, like, she's showing off. <laughs> the pause <laughs> at the colon of Top Gun, Maverick. <laughs> it was just so great. <laughs> and right. how she's the only person who has correctly pronounced Ruben Ustland. Is how she said it, which mm. is the right way, yeah. not Ostland, like yeah. how I've been saying it. But yeah, she she was great. Riz, hotter than ever. I could listen to him read any <laughs> audiobook. <laughs> so I just, yeah, he needs to have a career on like Audible or something or one of those like sleep mm-hmm. time apps where mm-hmm. they just read you a story before bed. I feel like Riz needs to look into that. Um, but yeah, I thought they were great and didn't really stumble at all. Ugh. I love the intro of... Oscar winner, Rez Ahmed, and producer of Megan, Allison Williams. <laughs> yes. I mean, when so when it was announced that the two of them were presenting, I was convinced that they chose Allison Williams because she was going to present adapted screenplay to Lena Dunham oh, for Catherine Calderon. And then the morning of, my friend, my other friend texted me and was like, Riz was in Girls 2. And I was like, oh my god, mm-hmm. this is it. Mm-hmm. It is the two of them. She's coming up. And then obviously... Didn't Last happen. season premiere. That's like an iconic moment. Mm-hmm. It was truly an announcement for the people who stuck around for all six seasons of Girls. <laughs> for all six seasons, yeah. <laughs> but my nominations that I'm wild for, Tar in cinematography and editing. So deserving. Mm-hmm. I love the way that Tar is shot. Florian Hoffmeister, I think, just did such a wonderful job 
shooting it as the DP. And then the editing. I mean, Monica Willie, the movie works in the way that it does because of how it's cut and so much of it. It's just the the pacing of it, the way that time is used. I just think both of those aspects are so brilliant. And I never in a million years thought they would be recognized. But <laughs> they will come up again later when we talk about director and why they're important. Yeah, those were nice. Okay, finally, we can talk about the Andrea Riseborough of it all. The best grassroots campaign that has ever happened in the history of Hollywood. They made it happen within like two weeks. They hit it the exact right moment during voting. I didn't think it was going to happen. No, I I didn't either. Me neither. So our best actress nominees, we had Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. This Andrea Riseborough campaign, I just remember being on Twitter one day and all of a sudden, Andrea Riseborough and Two Leslie and the same copy about this, what was it, a small film with a big heart, Mm -hmm. a giant heart, heart, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) bigger than big was everywhere and they really did time this so perfectly and it makes you think you know timing around these things really is everything it's when you have momentum that's part of it but then also what's going on here is you have people who are who are saying you need to vote for this person do it and they know how many votes you need to get nominated and they pulled that off i think that we can be upset and frustrated that Danielle Deadweiler and Viola Davis are not here and that these types of opportunities do not exist for black women in the same way that they exist for white women and that no one started this type of campaign for Lupita Nyong'o and us. No one started this type of campaign for Alfre Woodard in Clemency. And who knows if they would have started those campaigns if they even would have worked because of all of the barriers in the way because of the way that voters think. And a thing that Frances Fisher said that really just bothered me was that she she made a point to say that Kate, Michelle, Viola, and Danielle were locks. Mm. I mean, that's good. That's good campaigning. Unfortunately, it's a oh, you know, you don't, you don't need to vote for them. They have enough votes. Let's just get a fifth nominee mm-hmm. in there. And then you start pulling votes away from those who are vulnerable. It reminded me of when I first got into the Oscars really deeply was around 2010. And it reminded me of, at that time, it was a big deal that Julia Roberts was campaigning really hard for Javier Bardem to get nominated for Beautiful. And she was like buying screenings and hosting Q&As. And she was like leading a charge for him. It was a little bit less of a, like a full court press on game day than than Andrea Riseborough was, but it, it was a very, like, he's not going to get a, getting a big push otherwise, but, you know, his peers or people, other actors supporting him were the ones who were kind of pushing him mm-hmm. forward. So that's that's what I thought it was when Frances Fisher started her crusade, but it kind of kept, <laughs> obviously kept going from there and made it. So I don't know. I think it's, there's been a lot of conversation about mm-hmm. it online for better and worse and I think a lot of it has gone off the rails um I think where I come down to it is that in in and of itself it's a totally valid form of campaigning for this I think that there are ways that the the system is not set up for this to be able to benefit every actor Mm -hmm. you need to have a network in order to do this I 
wouldn't have told you a month ago that Andrea Riseborough had this type of network, but apparently she does. She's a great actress. She's been around. She's been doing great work and looking like a different person in every single role. Good for her. Mm-hmm. But it kind of toys with our game a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the people who spend a lot of time caring about this and thinking about it and calculating that it's hard to take a wrench thrown into it. And then, of course, when it when the outcome of it happening is that the two black actresses who were thought to be getting in or were the most likely people to get in if there weren't any newcomers to enter the race, then that that getting knocked out, I think, is a very bad optic for what I think is a fine, you know, way to go about it. If if there were a way to I like I wish everyone could do it, but I don't think everyone can. Right. I think there's like something that is broken fundamentally with all of this. But for me, part of it is like, is there a difference right. between a studio spending a small treasure chest worth of money on a campaign and doing it this way? Does the Andrea thing come down to like, they're all a part of the same talent agency? Like, has anybody looked into that? Like, I wonder if it's not just like mm. my friend, Andrea Riseborough, is it like, there is money behind this because I think that's what the Oscars comes down to quite a bit is money. Like what is that campaign? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the whole Weinstein of everything of bougieing all of these voters to vote for them. It's the Louis B. Mayer of it all too. Like when the Oscars started, (laughs) that's what they were all about. They were all about money and exclusivity and rewarding your company, Mm -hmm. your friends and your family in quotes, but that's your studio. Like that's your, your film home. So it's always been about that. I mean, it shows the timeline of the award season and what people are feeling because, I mean, as a sneak peek to our Contenders episode next week is original song at the Hollywood Music and Media Awards back in November. The song from Bros, Love Is Not Love, won in a category over Not To Not To. And now we're looking at a potential win for Not To Not To. But also Chow Papa won in the animated category, and that's not nominated here. So things just change over time. And here we are now talking about this other campaign that happens. And probably in another month, month and a half, we'll be talking about another campaign that's happening that's going to change a winner that, you know, if we predicted things today would be different. And I want to caution people against blaming Andrea Riceboro for all of this. Yeah, I imagine the text threads. Like, how did they coordinate this? I know. know. Like, did they get on some big Zoom for Frances Fisher? (laughs) Also, like, Diane Warren, she does this in a way every single year. Like, how does she get in every year for a song in a movie no one has heard of? She's doing it just not on Twitter. Okay, I haven't listened to it yet, but have you listened to Gonna Be You from 80 for Brady yet? No, not yet. (laughs) Well, it'll be on your list next year. I I know. I was going to say, you you can save it. I was gonna say one last thing about best actress. I think that the there's a way to look at it with clearly Andrea Riseborough and I think Ana de Armas are the you could look at them as the fourth and fifth slots that came in and took out Daniel Deadweiler and Viola Davis. It it also does them a disservice to look at it that way that like you were saying, kind of this isn't Andrea's fault, this isn't Anna's fault that they got knocked out. I also wish that people would kind of look at it not that like here are these here are these people battling for numbers four and five, and I have the same thoughts about Kate, Michelle, and Michelle as I do about Anna and Andrea in terms of the, all five of them got in and 
Danielle Tidweiler and Viola Davis did not. And if we're talking about merit, here's where I'll, I'll throw hands. Michelle Williams doesn't belong anywhere near this list. It is my least favorite performance in quite some time. Getting upset that some people got in and some didn't. I like Michelle Williams as an actress, but I think that definitely Danielle Deadweiler, because I've not seen The Woman King yet, but Danielle Deadweiler for sure deserves it over Michelle Williams, absolutely. And I feel pretty confident about that. So I, I wish that people would kind of look at this less in terms of here are the three who are supposed to get in, and here's two who are on the bubble. Therefore, those two knocked them out and looked at it more across the whole board that these were the five that were chosen or that, that got the most votes instead of directing everything at Andrea Resborough or Ana de Armas. My prayers go out to Ana de Armas updates. I'm very happy for them. <laughs> they have had probably both the best and the worst years of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I'm, I'm very happy that that person got a win. Yeah, no, I I think a lot of times what people are getting stuck on is that they want to see the season through in a certain way, and they want it to line up statistically with what we've seen before, when in reality, it is the five performances that this voting body likes the best during that voting window. I mean, there's more to it, of course, but I think people are a little hung up in their predictions, and that's what gets them in trouble. Interested to see if anything changes going forward if people decide to get creative in the way that they play the game like Andrea did this year because it paid off and I'm waiting you know a year from now what are the tweets going to be what are the tweet templates Mm -hmm. that get sent out I also we should talk about triangle of sadness a little bit so Nick good job to us we talked about triangle of sadness on our predictions episode so this got into best picture director and screenplay but Dolly De Leon didn't get into supporting actress. I have to say, this made me very sad. She was my favorite part of the movie. And we got a listener question about this from Sam Meltzer, who asked, how strange is it that Dolly didn't get in? I thought about this this morning in the same way that All Quiet did so well, and then Edward Berger didn't show up in director, but Uslan did. I don't know, because she showed up at BAFTA, but she didn't show up at SAG. So again, it's like, what are these voting bodies? How do they overlap in the opposite way that Paul Mescal showed up, but then after Sun didn't show up in screenplay, like I kind of expected in this weird way. I don't think it's strange that Dolly didn't show up, but it's just confusing to me and how there are so many different narratives playing out at the same time in opposite mm-hmm. ways. Absolutely. And it depends so much on branch right and like how the voters think and i i think for dolly her case i think that supporting actress was just really crowded i mean you if you think about it you have angela bassett who is a titan who is considered overdue in a movie that you can guess most people have seen you have carrie condon in the banshees of inisherin who you know is definitely going to get nominated her movie is big you have two people from everything everywhere all at once taking spots you know as the nomination leader And then Hong Chao, she's a person and a name who people have wanted to recognize, I think, for a while, but haven't had the opportunity to. And this felt like a time to do that. And I do think her performance in The Whale probably connected with actors a bit more. So I think Dolly DeLeon was probably number six. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. We also have to talk about cinematography, which (laughs) was another one where I didn't realize the big snub until minutes later. 
I think I texted you guys five minutes later, realizing that (laughs) Top Gun Maverick had missed cinematography. But our nominees here, we had All Quiet on the Western Front, Nick, your movie, Bardo, your other movie. Our movie because of the draft. That's it. (laughs) Elvis, Empire of Light, and My Beloved Tar. Empire of Light is my movie. That's your movie? (laughs) I loved it. Oh my god. We need to go into it. Bardo? No, Empire of Light. You and Richard Lawson, Bennett. I know. Yeah. (laughs) I did really like that score. I wish that that had appeared somewhere. I really like that score. I also don't think that this is bad work by Deacons. It's a little less, it's it's just kind of like not flashy. Right. I was surprised that it was what people were excited about about the movie, if anything. I mean, maybe it was because people weren't excited about much mm-hmm. about the movie. So they were just like saying, okay, well, the cinematography is good and the score is great. But yeah, it's, it's very, it's just kind of like nicely composed interiors. But, you know. I like how he lights the cinema. I think it's pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you said all season to not count out Deacons as a Titan in the category. Just looking at the ASC noms, because I think that's what threw us initially and had us really questioning what was going to happen here. We did have three overlaps with Greg Frazier, who is our reigning champ for the Batman, didn't make it in, which I wasn't necessarily thinking, like, just because he won, he's a shoe in to be nominated again for the Batman, which had three nominations, not in, like, overwhelming hall, but he swapped out along with Claudio Miranda for Top Gun Maverick for All Quiet on the Western Front and Tar. It is actually the most... The most times that the ASC nominations have missed the Oscar nominations in at least 15 years. Usually at least four of the Oscar nominees are present. But this is the first time that they only had three. Hmm. In a long time, at least. Tar got into BSC, and so did All Quiet on the Western Front. So maybe that is our more reliable predictor. I mean, I'm sure it just changes up year to year, and people like different movies. I think the thing with some of these was that a lot of the movies here we didn't think would be big nomination getters bardo empire of light the batman we didn't know about all quiet at the time we didn't know how tar would do so it was just sort of always in flux but we got questions about this specifically so hunter taylor asked what happened with cinematography we sort of answered that i think it just was different from what we were expecting with asc um, but Brian Sudfield also asked, with Top Gun out of cinematography, who do you feel is the new frontrunner? I also don't think Top Gun was the frontrunner of cinematography. I think it is for sound and editing, but that's completely different. I think I would say Elvis, which I think also is a frontrunner in a lot of technical categories and may have a very big haul come Oscar night. Do you guys agree or do you have different frontrunners? I think elvis as well i don't know elvis was also nominated at the baftas and at asc so again that is one that is showing up everywhere i could see all quiet on the western front yeah taking it as well just there were there were a lot of scenes in it that made me think of 1917 even just the like shots of the main character running through a (laughs) field with all of the other members of his like squadron and bombs going off and like a tracking shot for that that i was like oh this is really good but it also is making me think of what deacons did on 1917 so i can see people just voting for that yeah 
I'm leaning towards All Quiet on the Western Front now, just because when you think of what they've gone for in the past, I think it looks and feels the most similar to that. It's also just a, it feels like a, a big tech contender. I am wondering, though, if they just name check Deacons and he wins another <laughs> surprise. <laughs> My God. Can you imagine? But also, if Mandy Walker wins for Elvis, she would be the first woman in the history of the Oscars to win in cinematography, which would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elvis, I think, could win six Oscars. I mean, if you want to look at my tallies, I have at least four. So I think I texted you this morning. I was like, is Elvis even going to win anything <laughs> mm-hmm. or something? And I, I hadn't even thought about it. And then you were like, uh, yeah. And then I looked through it closer. And mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I understand. It feels like a movie that gets a lot of noms and doesn't win anything. Mm. I don't know. I, I do have this puzzle of Times Square that I'm working through that will take me at least six or seven more hours. So I have the Sea Beast, Elvis, the Banshees, all to play in the background and listen yeah, to. We'll, we'll find you we'll find you some like homework, just busy work movies to watch. Okay, we've talked about a lot of high points. What about some misses that we found? I think there were certain movies that we expected to show up or that have shown up in other places, i.e. The Whale getting nominated at PGA. So we were, you know, thinking that it could show up in other places, which it did not today. There are some other films like this and then some other films that just got totally shut out. But starting off, we had a question from Roy Mao. He asked, how did she said not get in over Top Gun in screenplay? And that is a wonderful question. What do you think? (laughs) The Top Gun screenplay Ugh. nomination jump scare. You can hear people in the live announcement gasp, which is my favorite right. thing when it's nominated. So for listeners wondering, Top Gun Maverick was adapted from a magazine article in the 80s. That is the source material oh, wow. that we're working with. Is it not just because it's a sequel? If you look on USC Scripter, the nomination oh, it yeah, says it was it's a from no. a magazine. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. The other question okay, is, is it going to show up tomorrow <laughs> at WGA noms? Maybe. Maybe because of because of the voting every, window. Everything maybe. that's disqualified. Oh, yeah. Oh. Or the, uh, all the ineligibilities. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about things we're wild for and things we're like anti-wild for, that was up there for me. But also 38 at the Garden not showing up in documentary short. I was like floored. I was so sad when the first thing oh. was in 38 because no this surprise the Lynn documentary i cried during the short yeah oh boy i think for where america is right now and things like the shooting at monterey park it would have been a very fitting documentary to have people watch and talk about definitely still go watch it it's on hbo max i really enjoyed it know nothing about basketball or jeremy lynn but had a wonderful time with this but yeah some some wild misses today but getting back to top gun i rewatched it did i tell you this bennett i don't think so i know i will say the screenplay is one of my least favorite parts about it we have also questions from jason and matthew saying top gun and screenplay question mark question mark why um but i did sob at the end (laughs) (laughs) i have to admit you always find yourself again at the end of the movie Uh (laughs) I watched the original the night before, and I think just the emotions from understanding the relationships and Goose and seeing Rooster there and, you know, pounding his dad's photo at the end, like, 
really got to me and that definitely mm-hmm. didn't happen the first time but i'm more appreciative of its presence here now because of a rewatch okay. so i think it's a very well constructed movie in the screenplay in, in that sense that it's the kind of the beat it the beats that it takes you through are there's a very nice flow to it and like you said there especially for people who have the emotional tie to the first film there's a, a way that that carries through to the sequel so I, I have less of a, an issue with the screenplay in terms of its structure. I think more just I couldn't bear it any time that they were on the ground. I think all the air scenes were great, but on the ground, and I, I put this in my letterbox review, it was like it was written um, like a Vanessa Bayer did a weekend update um, character of like kids in the news where it was like a like fourth grader hosting the um you know like the 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 news for their grade school in the morning (laughs) and the way they talked there was like there was one scene where the actress is her name monica barbaro with the main like woman pilot in the the squad they're at the bar and she goes oh maverick he's an ace that means (laughs) that he has gotten more than anyone else and that's in the news like the way that it's coming out was was just like i was like i can't stand this and it wasn't like clearly she was directed to do that but it was more the screenplay of how that was laid out that really upset me so in that sense i can't fathom this Mm. nomination but there are other aspects to screenplays there's structure there's you know ebbs and flows that i i do appreciate it made for an effective film i think though i mean i do i will say i prefer top gun maverick in this category to the whale which (laughs) i did think would be here i thought for sure for sure the whale would be here with its BAFTA nomination and screenplay over women talking its PGA nomination. It just felt like the whale was sort of primed to upset in this category, really um, to maybe even win. It was the same situation as best picture when it got to the W's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was either women talking or the whale. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I feel like a movie that showed up that I didn't have in my predictions until the very end was living and that's also in this category. Also, Bill Nye, we mentioned earlier. But, I mean, this movie came out. We've talked about how Sony Pictures Classics is with campaigning. And mm-hmm. I feel like, where did these votes come from? From me. <laughs> <laughs> I am very happy for Kazuo Ishiguro. But everyone with a good reads just was like, oh, it's Kazuo? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Yes. Yeah. You know, former English teacher here to <laughs> recommend the works of <laughs> Kazuo Ishiguro. I feel like, no, this this script, I think, while, you know, the movie isn't perfect and it does feel sometimes like a standard British film, I actually think that the screenplay, Ishiguro does such a good job in his novels and in all of his works of being very detailed and specific around these upper class or middle-class British tendencies. He's a great writer, and it was just exciting to see such a wonderful writer here in this category, because sometimes they're not, right? Like like you said, where did these votes come from? They are recognizing, in a way that Roger Deakins is for cinematography, Ishiguro is that for a lot of writers, so... I mean, not only that, you have here. the original from Kurosawa, Akiru, which... After seeing this movie, I was like, I need to see the original now. So he he did really do an amazing job. I haven't seen the original yet, still. Okay, watch it. It is ten times better than living. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying, it's it's wonderful. It will knock you out. I was going to say, that's an interesting point, that, that when Living came out, especially with the screenplay, a lot of people have compared it to 
the original, not complementarily. Mm-hmm. That I that's what made me worried about mm-hmm. this movie's chances. But it was like, oh, it's Ishiguro, but the first adaptation is yeah. so much better, or you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So. Yeah, and I I think that that is a true point, but it's mostly because of Kurosawa's direction. Like I think mm, the writing okay. and the performance of Living really holds up, and some of the direction that's where it felt a little bit more standard to me. Didn't really transcend like the Kurosawa does. Mm. And then we can talk about some of our favorite films that got zero Oscar nominations. Chels asked, what were our favorite films that got blanked? And The Futurist wants to know, why no nope noms? My answer to the first question, favorite films that got blanked, is nope. <laughs> so I, I think my answer to why is just because it it's a genre film, right? It's horror, it's sci-fi, and they don't always appreciate those even in tech categories but i think it absolutely deserved to be recognized in sound in cinematography in visual effects i really hoped that it would come through but they were so focused on these other movies that were getting these big nomination halls like we talked about and i feel like it could have gotten in to more of the original screenplay conversation Mm -hmm. if the five that got in weren't seemingly so tight yeah nope was one for me also she said that was my other big one absolutely loved it we talked about how it did make it into screenplay but carrie mulligan is nominated at bafta so it's showing up elsewhere throughout this season i think it was also surprising because it's a snapshot into hollywood and it's past and i felt like industry people people who have gone through this would want to have it spotlit and i was kind of surprised that it didn't show up in that way do you have a different favorite film, Bennett, that didn't show up? I had some ones that kind of feasibly could have shown up. Like my favorite film that didn't get any nominations was After Yang, but I didn't expect oh, it to get any yeah. nominations. Um, but the ones that, that had a chance and then didn't were in the international film category, Santo Mayor oh. and Decision to mm-hmm. Leave are two of my favorites of the year and kind of gutted that, I mean, Decision to Leave, kind of shocking that it didn't get in i know i think some people thought that i'm just realizing um, that it didn't show up <laughs> yeah oh my yeah. god right some people i think some people at last minute were like oh he could even get a director nomination like he could be mm-hmm. you know the the fifth that oh, gets in yeah. but it didn't even get international um and then santo mayor was probably less likely but more of my my dream pick um and then also in documentary feature uh descendant mm-hmm was kind of a shocking miss that I love that movie. It's my favorite doc that I've seen this year so far, and I still have a bunch to catch up on. But I was sad that those, I thought that a couple of those, I felt pretty confident that they'd get nominated. So I was really sad to see them miss. Decision to Leave is so, that was one I was scared would miss because of their track record with Korean cinema. Like Parasite is still the only one. And I think Mm. I have been tricked now into thinking that everyone likes Korean cinema and it's you know it had this big boom with Parasite and now the Academy will recognize it and it seems like they're just still resistant to it and I I hate that because I think it is it's better for me than a couple of the nominees in the category and speaking of Santa Mare, Alice Diop absolutely deserves a director nomination Mm -hmm. for this movie I I think Mm mm-hmm Okay, and let's get into some more fun listener questions that we had. So Luke Palmer asked, what do you think is the strongest acting category this year? Yeah, why not? I'm going to say supporting actor. 
I think that was another shock we haven't talked about is Brian Tyree Henry showing up for Causeway. Incredible. A great performance. I think, you know, the two from Banshee showing up. Kihoi Kwan going to win, a deserved win. But then Judd Hirsch showing up for this conversation about, you know, the difficulties of managing family and art, I think was a high point of the Fablemans for me and a great performance, albeit two minutes long. But I think I really enjoyed all these performances. Supporting is supporting. It can be short. I'm fine with that. No (laughs) category fraud. We don't want a co-lead. I was going to say, I think the only... Uh, between the two categories, th- between supporting actor and supporting actress, the only category fraud is Brendan Gleeson for me, which is great. I'm a little bit of a stickler, so there only being one is a great turnout. Bennett, what's your pick? Um, my pick is best actor, best lead actor. Mm-hmm. Um, with the caveat, I have not seen After Sun or Living yet. Living, who knows when it'll get here. <laughs> but After Sun, I'm should be seeing it this week. But kind of what I understand about those nominations and, and the performances, and then the three that I have seen, I so far they're all ones that I would put on my like long or short list for the category if I were, or when I am making my own list. I think in the other categories, there are too many people that I would not even consider. Mm-hmm. But in this, in Best Actor, I'm like, oh yeah, I would totally be happy if they got nominated, so... At least Austin Butler, Colin Farrell, Brendan Fraser. I am happy with all of those nominations. So we'll see how Paul Mescal and Bill Nye go when I see them. But pound for pound so far, best actor, I think. I will tell you, at least for me, Paul Mescal and Bill Nye are both wonderful. They are both the types of performances also that we never see. They're also sort of Mm. inversions of Brendan Fraser's character and performance in The Whale. Good. Okay. So living deals with the idea, right, of your impending death and coming to the realization that you should maybe have done things differently in your life and how do you want to live your life now and what do your relationships look like? And I think Bill Nye captures that so beautifully and so subtly and it just, you feel him in every every frame of the movie, even when he's not there. And Paul Mescal, the same thing here. It's like you have a person who's also coming to the realization that his relationship with his daughter is maybe different than he expected or that he should have done things differently Mm. as a parent. And it's all about that father-daughter relationship. And it's very, very different and a good photo negative to the whale. So I I really appreciated both of those performances. And Paul Mescal, I mean, the lone acting nominee, like, I just love it. He's young. We never get nominations like this, ever. So, yeah, I'm just, like, thrilled by it. I was excited by all of these names. Colin Farrell gives one of my favorite performances of the year, too. I think Austin Butler is great in Elvis. I also just enjoy him generally. I know this is a hot take and a disagreement, but I love the Elvis voice, and he can keep doing it however long he wants. And Brendan Fraser, despite not liking The Whale, I I think he did his best with the material, truly, and brought some sense of humanity to it. I agree with that. I'm excited for his campaign to be done in a month and a half, but I'm happy. Or I, when I left the movie, I was like, I think that Brendan Fraser is doing something that the film isn't, yeah, or trying trying to convey something that the film is working against, and mm-hmm. I can tell that he's doing a good job. So that's why I'm, you know, pleased yeah. or satisfied, I guess, with yeah with his inclusion. When you when you mentioned After Sun, I just need to dig at Sadie Sink again. So the is the daughter in After Sun good? 
She's wonderful. Okay. She's a she's a perfectly talented child actor. You calling Austin the young nom, but knowing Paul is younger is something that continually shocks me. I can't believe he's only 26. He's younger than Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. I can't believe it. Imagine having Timothy Chalamet have a child in a movie. It would not work. (laughs) But Paul Mescal having a child in this movie, you believe it. You believe every second. Yeah. Yeah. He lived a life as a teenager, Paul Mescal. Okay, next question we have from Kyle Bailey. What will Mrs. Harris be wearing to the Oscars? I wonder if she's pivoted away from a different designer. She'll be wearing Dior. I'll say Dior. I took this to mean Jenny Beaven, which I oh. know was not the question, <laughs> but I was like, oh, is Jenny Beaven going to wear? Because she, for her last two wins, she comes wearing like a, some type of suit or like a jacket. Mm-hmm. And for um, Mad Max Fury Road, it was like bedazzled with the big like skull and fire on the back. Mm-hmm. And when she came for Cruella, it was like big black and white. So I think if she came in wearing like a Dior suit, like a, a sleek, I guess I don't know what Dior's women's suits look like, but I imagine them being like sleek and kind of minimalist um, mm-hmm. with maybe like a flare just in a couple spots. but Like, like the that. French collar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is one of the movies I have yet to watch. So I guess we'll find out when I watch. This is a puzzle movie. This, oh, this is a real puzzle movie. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. a puzzle movie. <laughs> Get cozy. Light a candle, do your puzzle. Yes. Okay, our next question is from Oliver Ayer. PGA only nominated the top seven safe PGA picks. Is this an anomaly or a thing to consider for the future? So I think what this question is getting to is that of the 10 PGA nominees, seven of them were considered solid and ones that everyone was pretty confident were going to make it over to Best Picture. And there were three that were kind of on the bubble. What ended up happening was that those seven that people thought were solid did make it into Best Picture, and the three that were on the bubble, those being Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Glass Onion, and The Whale, those three that were kind of iffy, they all got swapped out and replaced by three other movies. So I think what this one's going for is kind of, do we think that we can look at that in the future to say, oh, all of these are pretty solid, therefore they'll make it, and the ones on the bubble, let's... Let's replace them and kind of use that as a rule of thumb. Um, I think it's an interesting point. I think that with PGA, the things are going to change in the way that we need to look at PGA. Because previously, in in years when we had varying nominees between 5 and 10, you could look at the PGA list and say, okay, maybe there's one movie that's not on this list that's going to make it in but there's gonna be at least a couple that drop out, right? Like 10 PGA nominees, eight Best Picture nominees, at least two of them are gonna drop. Um, but now that we are going 10 PGA nominees and a consistent 10 Best Picture nominees, the way that we're gonna look at things that are kind of solid versus what's gonna drop out, we're just gonna see more movies that are not on the list, on the PGA list, make it into the best picture list at the Oscars because we need to fill 10. So instead of starting with 10 and just taking a couple out and cool, there's your eight for best picture. Now we're starting with 10 and saying, okay, we need to keep 10, but there's a lot of other options that might come into play. So I, I, I guess all that to say going forward, I would expect there to be more 
films not on the PGA list that end up getting nominated for Best Picture than there were previously. So in this year, there were three. I don't think that the solid versus on the bubble line should be drawn in ink and say that everything else needs to be cut over. But I would say going forward that we should expect more movies that are not nominated for PGA to get in than if you look in the past couple decades. I completely agree. The only thing I would even add is just that with that too, it's like as the Academy is becoming more international, PGA never recognizes any international films on their lists. So that leaves room for things like All Quiet on the Western Front to come into Best Picture, Triangle of Sadness, which isn't English, but is a European production. Like those things don't show up at PGA, but felt like they had a place in the Best Picture lineup. Next question from Charles, which below the line nom will you be using your witchy powers to support? Sophia, what do you have? I will be using my witchy powers to give David Byrne and Mitski an Oscar win for original song (laughs) for everything everywhere all at once. (laughs) This is a life just stands out in the category to me. I do support not to not to as well, because I think that's a fun nomination, but I will be using my witchy powers on David Byrne and Mitski. Of course. Well, Sophia, that was my choice, so I'm just going to take what I thought was going to be yours, which is tar in cinematography. Oh, you know, I I really hope that can happen. We're saying that that category is so up in the air, and I would... That would be such a rad win oh. if it were just something that's not showy, but is really beautiful. Okay, I'm going to split my split my manifestations and spread the crystals out across oh the nominees. <laughs> I mean, I would love for Tar to win editing. That's another one. But like I said, I think that's pretty locked right now. I'm so curious to hear what you have winning. I'm sorry. In like all of these categories, I want to (laughs) know. Am I saying like different (laughs) things than everybody is thinking? I don't know. (laughs) Um, I guess I could also say my year of dicks and animated short. (laughs) Great. That's the exact answer I wanted. I wish it were a documentary short. Me too. Bennett, I know you've talked about how important a title is before on the pod last year, two years ago. I'm not sure, but I think this is a case, very much a case where the boy, the mole short follows the trend of A-list actors voicing these characters and thinking it's going to win, but it not winning. I think that might happen here. So I think it has a real chance. I can't wait to watch it. I'd vote for it. I can't wait to cover that one. I'm really, really excited. Okay, and then our last question that we have from The Futurist, a perfect way to wrap up. Will Nick cry when the Daniels beat Spielberg in Best Director? Do both of you feel like this is pretty sewn up? No, I don't. No, I I have not made the list, but I, in my head, The Fablemans pulls the power of the dog and Spielberg's is the only win. Can I share my theory now? Yes. If we look at the expanded era, so 2009 on, only two times has a director winner not had cinematography and editing nominations for their film. Inyaritu for Birdman and Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. Birdman missed editing, Parasite missed cinematography. And <laughs> do not do not land this plane on Todd Field. I'm landing the plane on Todd Field. <laughs> Tar is the only film with cinematography and editing nominations, and I think he can win. Right now, at this moment in time, I think he can do it, and I'm going to throw all of my witchy powers above the line to Todd Field and director. 
my above line answer was Todd Field and screenplay. Oh yeah, my God. I think that screenplay is just far and above this year, just incredible. I would be so so excited though if it was a Banshees, Tar split in director and screenplay. That would be my dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm just throwing it out there that Tar has cinematography and editing, and none of the other directors have both. Okay. Getting to the question, I won't cry. Um, <laughs> is it sad that the Fablemans may likely win zero Oscars? Yes, but I feel like the support for that film has been pretty mixed and varied across all of these different bodies we've seen. So I really don't know what to make of it. And it's not like I'm expecting it to do well i think you know if we look back and it doesn't win and we see that he won at the globes it like very much is a globes thing to award somebody that may not win elsewhere so i think to wrap up what does everyone think at this moment in time is winning best picture that's an easier question than any of the questions we've asked today for me it's everything everywhere bennett i right now right now i would also say everything everywhere only well not only but I, also, I wanted to mention, in my predictions, I didn't think it was going to get anything below the line. I thought it was just going to get picture director acting and screenplay. Mm-hmm. I, and so because it showed up below the line, that makes me, right now at least, say that it'll win. On January 24th, 2023, at 10.21pm Eastern, I am saying everything, everywhere, all at once will win <laughs> Best Picture. Okay. Oh my god! I, it feels like a perfect combo of a frontrunner and an underdog. Mm-hmm. And I think that's deadly. Yeah. I just wonder if it can sustain it. But I've been proven wrong about this movie many times throughout the season. Mm-hmm. So I think it might be able to overcome every hurdle. We will see. If it can stick around for nine months, I think it can sustain another nine weeks. Wild. It really is. Well, thank you, Bennett, for coming back for another big day. We will see you next time when we know all of the winners <laughs> of the oscars again once the press release hits my inbox with all the winners then i know that the zoom link is active <laughs> and it's time for me to join thank you for having me i'm very very happy to to go through all this and and also just text you all throughout the day today it's it's nice to have i've got a couple couple friends who are really good at that and really enjoyed spending the day with you guys oh it was tough watching because I had to watch on Twitter, but then that meant that I couldn't see <laughs> oh. the text thread. So I would, when they split, I was like, okay, great. Read through all the texts and react in delayed time to, oh my God, Judd Hirsch. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, the, and the, the problem is that a lot of the texts are just like, OMG, Jesus Christ. Right. They're not actual oh, descriptor. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Bennett, so much for coming. Can't wait to see you in nine, ten weeks. I don't know how long it is anymore. I'm just like, after the Oscars in March, can't wait. But next time on Oscar Wild, we've been saying this the entire episode. We are starting our contender series. We're back. This is when we talk about every single Oscar nominee. We split it up in like seven episodes, talking about the text, splitting up acting. On the first episode... We'll be talking about some technical categories. We have original song, original score, sound, film editing, and visual effects. I'm so excited to talk about these categories. And yeah, the way we're changing up this series, we're actually eliminating the prediction element from the episodes. 
So we will not be talking about who we think will win each category. We are just talking about the contenders as contenders, completely eliminating the horse race aspect of it, hopefully, and just sharing what we like about these contenders and who they are. So you guys can follow along with all of these episodes and with the nominees when you're watching the show. Thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. If you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. We have finally finished up our Benefer series, and we'll be airing the last episode of that where we talked about two 2022 gems, Deepwater and Marry Me. Intriguing, I know. <laughs> That one was a lot of fun. Yes, thank you all for listening, and we will see you very soon. Bye.